0: Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today's preacher is Donald Gray Barnhouse. After high school, Barnhouse enrolled in Biola, Bible Institute of Los Angeles. He studied doctrine with Reuben Archer Torrey. Torrey took a personal interest in Barnhouse. But by overcommitting committing to ministry work, Barnhouse failed to complete all of his note-taking assignments for graduation. Torrey refused to let him graduate with his class and required him to finish his notebook assignments and graduate belatedly. Today, Dr. Barnhouse continues with his studies in Mark chapter one, verse one, Jesus the Servant.
1: Sunday we gave an introduction to this gospel and pointed out that as Matthew was written by a Jewish tax gatherer and spoke of the kingdom and was addressed to the Jews, Luke by a Greek physician and he wrote to the Greeks and presenting Jesus as the Son of Man, John as the beloved of Christ wrote concerning Jesus as the Lord God Almighty, the eternal second person of the Godhead, Mark, was a servant and wrote of Jesus as the servant. During this week, we happen to have had as guests for a day at our home a young Lutheran minister and his wife and their three small sons, ten, eight, and six, a young man whom I've been interested in for many years, helping him become an expository preacher. And his oldest son is named Mark, And at the table, when we were talking about names, the father said, Mark didn't like it much that I named him Mark. And so I began to tell the boy some of the things about Mark. Now, Mark was a servant. There are five names for servant in the Bible. There's a bond slave. The word apostolos, apostle, is translated servant. The common word that has given us deacon is translated servant. The noun that has given us the word liturgy speaks of the servants about the temples. And then there is another word of which was the title given to Mark that was the common uh, word in Greek for what we would call a seaman second class in the Navy. The lower rowers, for they had big boats, you know, and oars at one place and then at another and then at another in the triremes. And the slaves that had it the hardest were in the galleys, the lowest order, second-class seamen, and that's what Mark is called in the Book of Acts. And he's the man that God fitted to teach the Gospel of Mark, which we now study. I propose to take this Gospel in subsequent Sundays, not as I have taught Romans or John, uh, putting a microscope on each line and verse, but rather taking whole stories, taking ten or a dozen verses at a time. But this morning, I must begin with just the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now the doctrines that center around the gospel, the doctrines that are the core of Christianity, were known and preached in the year 35 and 40 and 45 and 50 and 55, and so on. The first line of the New Testament was written over 20, about 25 years after Christ died. And then little more and more, but don't forget that Paul himself died before John wrote the Gospel of John. Paul never read John 3.16, had never heard it. Paul never read the book of Revelation. Paul never read the epistles of James, of Peter, of John. Paul had never read the Gospels. They came after, for the epistles were written before the Gospels. Never think of the fact that the epistles were written to explain the Gospels. The Gospels were written as memoranda to the rising generations to set before them the historical facts upon which the gospel which they well knew were based. For the gospel they knew that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again. I remember one night when we had a meeting in a certain, one of the motion picture theaters years ago, a group of men were standing around counting an offering. And they came to a coin and they said, what's this? And they passed it around. I don't know what miser had carried it in his pocket for many years. It was a 25-cent piece. But it was so worn on one side that you could not see the date. You could just barely trace the profile of liberty. And on the other side, the inscription was completely worn off. It was a 25-cent piece, but it was worn and worn and worn. And the word, the gospel, has become like that with many people. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, until it has rubbed at the edges and has lost its meaning for many people. And we need from time to time so to present it that it comes like one of the new 25-cent pieces minted here in the mint struck with the hydraulic press out of bar silver and so comes forth so shiny that the minute anyone sees it they feel almost the heat of the press as it came forth. Thus we need constantly to renew our lives, to take our thoughts of what the gospel is, to melt them down if necessary and have them struck again at the mint and brought to us that we may realize what the gospel is. Now, a close look at some of the descriptions of the gospel in the New Testament may help us to bring it to our hearts afresh. Here it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you take the good concordance and go through the New Testament, you'll discover it set forth as the gospel of God, as the gospel of his Son, as the gospel of the grace of God, as the gospel of the blessed, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God as the gospel of peace, and as the gospel of the glory of Christ. These are some of the names that are attached to it. I was very interested this week when I was preparing this message to take my Greek concordance and glance down, and I discovered to my amazement that the word gospel is not to be found in Luke, and it's not to be found in John. So I began to look, and I discovered that the word gospel is found four times in Matthew, eight times in Mark, Never in Luke, never in John, never in John's epistles, never in uh, only once in the book of Revelation, the everlasting gospel, which perhaps has a different connotation from what we're talking about. The word, the gospel, is never found in James, in Jude, or in Hebrews, once in Peter, but 61 times in Paul's epistles. The word gospel is Paul's word. The good news, the good news, the good news. Our Anglo-Saxon form of it comes from God's spell, the good story. Christ had had used the word himself. In fact, when you read it in Matthew, the word gospel, it's, it's not talking about what we know as the gospel. He said the poor have the gospel of the kingdom preached to them. Now, this leads us immediately to the great fact that the central truth of Christianity is A record of historical fact. It's not a philosophy, it's not a system of morality, but it's history. It is the true good news for men. The world is hungry, and the world is hungry for one thing only. When the world cries for bread and the philosophers give it a stone, It's a terrible thing, but when men cry to God, God gives them the true bread, the bread that comes down from heaven, even the Lord Jesus Christ. And though this bread, this gospel story be of small matter in the eyes of many people, something like the common barley cakes of the very poor in Europe, the poor man's food, it's nevertheless this gospel is what we all need. The humble people, the simple people, the uneducated people, the barbarous people, the dying people, and little children can come to this story and find in it everything that our hearts need so that no matter who we are, no matter what we are, this great truth can become the very center of our hearts. There's very little to feed a man in the philosophies and doctrines of men who try to set forth great systems of ethics, try to attempt to tell men to do the best they can. That's not the gospel. Emerson can come and say, hitch your wagon to a star. But I always found that I didn't have any lasso that was long enough to get the star. And that if I could have found the star, the shafts of my wagon were too short to reach to it. And it's nothing to tell a man to hitch his wagon to a star, but this is something that comes right down to us, that every one of us can can find all that we need. The story that our brother, for that's what he calls himself, came down and lived for us and died for us, and that feeds our heart and that feeds our mind and that feeds our will it occupies our fancy and our imagination it fills our memory and it fills our hope and it nourishes the whole nature into spiritual health and makes it possible for us to go forward and of all the things that have ever been thought by men this story is the only one that deserves the name the good news for men the gospel Now, we have the historical fact, but it needs explanation. For the fact by itself is no good news. Christ died, well, so have millions of other men. Christ was buried, well, so have millions of other men. Christ rose from the dead, well, they've said that about lots of men, but it's only been true of him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel which I preached is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. So the fact of the gospel has three parts in it, death, burial, and resurrection. But these facts could have been seen by any eye, but they were not good news until you add these subsequent clauses. Christ died for our sins, and then it becomes good news. Christ died according to the scriptures, and thus it immediately becomes good news. For the facts without purpose are meaningless. And any lower interpretation of these facts is no gospel anymore. No more gospel than the story of the death of Socrates. The gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, thus it's called. And the two phrases are used interchangeably. The gospel of god the gospel of christ and the way they're used interchangeably shows us that the men who used them thought of god and thought of christ as being the same there was no difference in their eye towards these two when paul says god when paul said christ he was talking about the same being this attitude could only be understood of men who had believed Jesus Christ when he said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ are phrases that show the good news that God and Christ are both the author of the gospel and that God in Christ is the subject of the gospel, for that's the heart of it. The gospel of God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel that comes from God, it's the gospel that comes from Christ. But it's God in Christ, as Paul says in Second Corinthians. God in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, and hath committed unto us that ministry of revelation. Now note two things that said about the gospel in Acts 20 and verse 24. We find the phrase, the only time in the Bible that it occurs, that it's called the gospel of the grace of God. And when you speak of the gospel of the grace of God, you find him stooping to us. I've pointed out that love, love that goes upward is adoration. That love that goes outward is affection. That love that stoops is grace. And so when we find the gospel of the grace of God, we see God coming down to us. But in the New Testament also, not only is it called the, God of grace, uh, the gospel of grace of God, it's called the gospel of the glory of God. Now this is hidden in the King James Version. For if you turn to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in our King James Version, it says, lest the light of the glorious gospel shine into them. But definitely in the Greek, it's not the glorious gospel, but the gospel of the glory of God. And the poor King James translators didn't understand how the gospel could be the gospel of the glory of God because it seemed to them to be that they had an idea that glory was something majestic and awful and they didn't understand the true nature of glory. I'm delighted that in the Revised Standard Version that it is translated as the Greek is, they weren't afraid to put it as it is and to set it forth as the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now, this gives us the assurance that the glory of God is not to be found in his power, his majesty, and his might, and his dominion. You know, when I think of the power of God and the force of God, I have all I want of that in Hurricane Carol and Hurricane Edna. I have all I want of it when I read that the ground opened in Algiers last week and a thousand people were killed. Many of them dropped into crevices of the earth. Well, when we see that story, when winds rip through the world and earthquakes come and we say, these are acts of God. Well, there is that in my being and probably in yours, too, that say, yes, God is terrible, but I want something more than that. The true glory of God is not in his ability to knock down a city or send a great wind. But what this text is teaching us when it calls it the gospel of the glory of God is that the true glory of God is in his grace. An English preacher said this, the true glory of the divine nature is its tenderness. The loneliness and death of Christ are the glory of God, not in the awful attributes that separate that inconceivable nature from us, not in the eternity of his existence, nor in the infinitude of his being, not in the omnipotence of his unwearied arm, nor in his fire-eyed omniscience that sees to the heart of us, but in the pity and graciousness which bend lovingly over us is the true glory of God. These pompous attributes are but the fringes of the brightness, the living white heart of which is God's love. So God's glory is God's grace. And the purest expression of both is found there where Jesus hangs dying in the dark. Now I can understand that where that reaches me. And it is only thus that we can understand the first line of this gospel according to St. Mark. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The gospel of the Lord as the servant, the gospel of the Lord of glory, who showed his glory by becoming little for us. He descends, he condescends, he stoops, he serves, he dies, he saves. This is his glory. I remember seeing pictures of George the Sixth in his coronation robes. Now George the Sixth didn't look too much like a king. I remember one day in Brussels at an exposition, we were looking at certain things, and all of a sudden a party of people came down. There was George VI of England. He hadn't yet become king. And as he walked along, he looked very common and ordinary. He didn't come much above my chin. And he had a high silk hat on, which made him taller than me. And he had a lot of people with him. But he he wasn't much of a man to look at. And, and when I later saw him, uh, the crown was so much bigger than his little face that it looked top heavy on him, and the ermine robes and the great affair. If you if you looked closely, there was uh, under the dignity there was just a slight element of, of humor attached to it. But I saw a picture of George the where uh, I knew he was the king. It was a picture where a great block-busting bomb had struck down in the East End, and he walked with Mr. Churchill, and they went down the sea. And the story goes, Churchill tells it in his memoirs, that already on the mounds of debris, the people had defiantly put up little Union Jacks. And as the king came, and he was dressed in a sack suit and a derby hat, and when they printed the photographs, they had to put up, arrow on it, pointing to the king, because you couldn't have picked him out among anybody else that walked along with him. And as he walked, he cried. And Churchill pointed out the fact that the people looked at the king crying in the midst of their debris and said, he loves us, he loves us. And to my mind, that's the noblest picture of the king of England I ever saw, and far more noble a picture than of him with his crown. And so when I want to see the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, I see him on the cross dying for me. You know, he saves, he dies, it's for you, it's for me. And that's the whole story of the gospel. If you haven't taken it personally for yourself, you've misunderstood the whole story. This is not something written in history. This is not an account of a Caesar. It's not the account of the life of a Marcus Aurelius. It's not the account of anything else. It's the account of God come down to die for you and for me. And when you understand it that way, it becomes minted. It becomes a fresh new coin. You've got to make it personal for yourself. This week I was preaching in Wilmington. An old lady came up to me She was soon revealed in the course of her conversation as the widow of a Methodist minister. She must have been 70 years old. She asked me an indirect question, and through years I've always learned that when people have a problem about themselves, they'll come and say, I have a friend who has this problem. And you've got to know right away that it's, remember that young men who are studying for the ministry, when anybody comes and says, could you give me some advice for a friend of mine, They're scared to death to tell you this is myself and I don't know what to do. And always treat that problem as though you know that it's the individual themselves are talking about. So she said, after the second coming, if Christ came today, would those that lived here on earth have a second chance? And I said, do you need a second chance? I knew it was she and she said, well, I don't know whether I'm saved. I don't know how can I know and I said is God a liar oh no well it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life is God a liar oh no well do you believe that God loves you yes did he give his son to die for you yes well then what do you have Mm, I'm afraid well I said is God a liar oh no well, what does it say that those that believe have everlasting life? And you believe? Yes. Well, then what do you have? Well, I hope that I have eternal life. I said, in other words, you hope that God is not a liar. Oh, no, she said, I, God is not a liar. Well, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, what do you have? She said, I suppose I should say that I have eternal life. I said, in other words, you suppose that you should say that God is not a liar. And I just took her on phrase by phrase until finally she came to the place where she said, but it seems so bold to say it, but it's so foolish not to say it. Is God a liar? No, God is not a liar. and you can say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He loved me and gave himself for me. That's it.
0: You've been listening to Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers. (laughs)